Hi everyone, I'm Chelsea Brown, and welcome to the Millie Podcast. The more I talk with people, the more I'm hearing the same thing. We're all looking for more meaning and more substance. People want to get away from the scripted reality and get to the heart of each person's story. This podcast is for women who want to rip up the script and explore new ideas, places, and possibilities. Every two weeks, I'll be talking with an inspiring and inspired woman who is creating impact in her community. And more importantly, a woman who can teach us to be ourselves, go after our dreams, and write our own story. I can't wait to share this journey with you. It's time to see the world in a different way. I'm so excited for this opportunity to speak with Dame Elizabeth Anianwu, DBE, Emeritus Professor of Nursing at the University of West London and the UK's first sickle cell and thalassemia nurse specialist. Sickle cell anemia. It's an inherited blood disorder. The symptoms include a sort of clotting and this can cause severe pain. Recently named a BBC 100 Woman of the Year, Dame Elizabeth has continued her work and mission well into retirement, recently bringing to the nation's attention the devastating impact COVID-19 has had on Black and Asian communities. Those who have long-term conditions, as we call them, such as sickle cell disease, are particularly vulnerable. Black and minority ethnic communities were severely affected. At age four, Elizabeth was inspired to become a nurse while in care at a covent. A nurse nun treated her childhood eczema in an expert, sensitive, and compassionate manner, which was in stark contrast to the treatment she received from the other nuns. It made an indelible impact on her life and in turn the lives of so many other people. It was a nice cream that they used to put over it. Coal tar cream applied was just just beautiful. And then they would put some gauze over it and then bandage it up. Now, I never wanted to be a nun. I wanted to be a nurse. And I kept to that decision. And it was a wonderful career that I had in nursing. In 1979, she worked with Dr. Misha Brozovic to create the UK's first sickle cell and thalassemia counseling centre in the London borough of Brent which was the first of over 30 centers they opened across the country. She considers this to be one of her greatest achievements. You know, I'm mixed race, I'm a single parent, but I've done well in life. And yet my early life started out in a more troubled way. Born in Birmingham in 1947, Elizabeth is of Irish-Nigerian heritage, which along with being born to a single mother, greatly influenced her upbringing and identity. Yeah, I knew I was different. I never met a non-white person until I was 18. I remember washing my face 10 times with red carbolic soap to try and become white like my friends. She writes about this and more in her recently released memoirs, Dreams from My Mother, which I urge you all to pick up and read. It's an inspiring story about childhood, race, identity, family, hope, and how all of this shapes who we are. It is my sincere honor to welcome Dame Elizabeth Anianwu. How is the weather today in London? We had sun yesterday, but it's quite gloomy looking outside. I haven't been out. I usually go out for a walk, but I've had a relaxed morning. Oh, good. Perfect. Well, first of all, thank you again for joining me. I know this will be clear to anyone who has read your book, But what motivated you to write Dreams from My Mother? It was friends and people I had worked with before retirement who, having heard bits of my life story, particularly my early years, felt that I should write about it because I have done well in life and yet my early life started out in a more troubled way. And they felt that it was important. You know, I'm mixed race. I'm um, Nigerian Irish heritage, a single parent, but I've done well in life uh, eventually. And people felt that this this positive narrative needed to be shared because often some people in my situation, there's often thought to be, won't achieve very much. And, uh, you know, the the view is the expectations are not as high. And so people felt that this is an example of a more positive outcome. 
basically people slightly putting pressure on me to do it in the nicest possible way. But um, so I thought I had a period of quiet time. I thought, let me try it. So I self-published originally. And then a publisher came along. And uh, so it became Dreams from My Mother. And also I did an audio recording of the book as well. I own your book. And I also listened to the audio version of your book. And I have to say it was very special listening to you narrate the emotion and the passion and the way you spoke about your mother. Can you tell us about Mary Furlong and what role she played in your life? Yes, certainly. So my mother was called Mary Maureen Furlong. Uh, That's her maiden name. And she was born in the 1920s to a first-generation Irish family. Her parents had been born in Liverpool, England, where there is a big Irish population. And her grandparents were the um, generation that had emigrated from Ireland in the, I think it was the 1880s. So that's that's my mother's heritage. My mother was born in Liverpool and then the family moved to Stafford, which is in the Midlands uh, in England, not too far from Birmingham. And my mother was uh, a very gifted child and she got a scholarship to Cambridge University to study classics in the last year of the Second World War. So that was 1945 and it was she was doing extremely well in both her first year and her second year she won prizes in each of those years but she became pregnant with me Mm -hmm. uh, in in her in her second year of studies and dropped out um, from university yes I found myself deeply empathizing actually for her experience and how she had to fight to keep you can you? Mm, yes. That was remarkable. And just the, the story and the way you told it. Can you describe how different things were at that time for women who had children out of wedlock? Oh, gosh. So we're talking about 1947. And uh, remembering that my mother was Catholic. Yeah. She came from a very devout religious family. She was very loved. It was strict family, but very, very loving family. And, uh, and you know, at that time for a woman to yeah. become pregnant in a Catholic um, family, you only have to read um, or, or even watch the, the film Philomena mm-hmm. to get, to, to really get an understanding of the forces that were there at that point. But actually, there was a difference from my mother. If you compare her story with that of Philomena, because uh, Philomena was hounded out of her home. Um, She was treated very badly by the Catholic Church. Mm. Uh, she, she, She faced a lot of stigma. That didn't actually happen with my mother. But, um, she, she stayed with my grandparents. They did everything they could to work with the University of Cambridge to enable her to go back and complete her degree once she'd had the baby. I don't know whether the university realised she was pregnant because they they talked about her having a nervous breakdown. Right. So that could show the stigma around revealing that she was pregnant. Yeah. And and she she had to stay in in the in the family home. She was forbidden to go out. Mm-hmm. So there was there was the shame was there, and and the, the, they didn't want the neighbours to know. Um, but the Catholic Church did bend over backwards to provide a mother and baby home for her, to look after me. What was thought to be temporarily it lasted a lot longer than that in the end. But that that you could see the differences there, and I think it was because my grandparents were very close to the parish priest, particularly my grandfather. They were a lower middle class with a a very bright daughter who had got this scholarship to a very prestigious university. 
to study <laughs> a subject like the classics. So I think it, she was treated differently. Yeah. Uh, she was in a more favoured position than many single pregnant girls, women mm -hmm. in Catholic uh, homes. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, uh, looking at the positives, that, that all helped me eventually. And um, I mean, the sad thing was that my mother never fulfilled her academic yeah. uh, opportunities, although she was given the chance, but she wanted to desperately make a home for me. Mm -hmm. And to her, all through her life, her first commitment and love was for her children. That those came, they came first before anything else. So she's, I think she subsumed a lot of her ambitions in order to protect her children mm -hmm. and give them, you know, the, the best start in life that she could. Yeah, it was really a heartbreaking story, but a resilient story mm. to hear and to read. Really empowering. What was it like growing up in the convent? So this was a Catholic children's home called the um, Nazareth House right. in Birmingham. It was part of a network of children's homes with that name. My carers, if you if you want to call them that, were the nuns. I, I only saw nuns. And, uh, you know, it was all I knew. It was my home for the first nine years of my life. And overall, I was very happy. And in fact, when I left, you know, I remember I do write about it, on the bus from Birmingham to Wolverhampton with my mother, I was sobbing my heart out because yeah. I was leaving my friends and, you know, most of the nuns were very nice. Uh, it was all I knew. So I was going entering into this very strange, slightly frightening world, you know, yeah. new world. Uh, there were downsides, <laughs> as, as you, you know, but not as many as you see in other narratives in, in care, as they called it, in, in children's homes whether they be lay or, or religious. And some of those accounts that I've read of individuals brought up in convents such as Nazareth House have been very negative. Um, they've been subject to physical abuse, yeah. um, sometimes um, sexual abuse. So, you know, I thought, my goodness, how, how, how lucky I was. I, I didn't, I did get punished quite severely, Th those children, uh, like me who wet the bed it was mm -hmm. particularly harsh punishment where we had to stand on a chair each yeah. each of us had to stand on a little chair with our urine soaked bed sheets draped over us yeah. with our arms outstretched underneath and uh, wrapped on our knuckles with a ruler or something if our when our arms did drop so you know you remember I remember punishments like that but overall I I I, I had more I more I had more happier experiences than negative. So for example, Irish dancing, which I absolutely mm -hmm. adored, being taught to learn the piano, and being very, very sad that when I left, I never yeah. had the opportunity to carry on with piano lessons. Music, I obviously had an ear for music, but I've always loved music in in any form. Um, yeah. singing. I loved I loved how you talked about uh, being in Paris. And the music and the film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wonderful nine months of my life. That sounded in Paris. like it. I yes. would love to ask you more about your experience uh, as a child. And, and can you tell us about the wonderful nun who treated your childhood eczema and how that made yes. a difference in your life? Yes, I called her in my own mind the white nun. Mm. Well, all the nuns were white, they were predominantly Irish nuns. But she wore a white habit rather than the traditional black habit that nuns wear. And she was, in fact, a nurse, I eventually found out. So she was, a, she was a nun, but she was also a nurse. And I would go to, I presume, the sick bay. I have very vague <laughs> memories of the actual location. But I had very severe eczema in my mm. armpits and behind my knees. And it would be treated. There was a nice cream that they used to put over it, coltar cream. Because although my skin is brown, when the eczema flared up badly, it would get very red that area, mm. hot and itchy and painful. So to have this cooling uh, coal tar cream applied was just, just beautiful. Yeah. And then they would put some gauze over it and then bandage it up. 
and it would feel fine. And of course, it stopped me from scratching because I had the bandage over it. Mm-hmm. But the difficulty came when it was time to change the dressing right. because by this time the gauze had dried onto the coal tar had stuck onto it oh. and most time well if, if it was another nun that was taking it off who wasn't a, a nurse they would just tear it off and it would pull off the skin and it would bleed and it would be painful and I would be bawling my little eyes out you know and yeah. screaming Fortunately, most of the times I went, it was <laughs> the white nun. And she was wonderful because she used distraction therapy. Mm-hmm. She would use what I thought were rude words like bottom. You have to remember, this was a very Catholic environment. And uh, nuns, what we were told, were the brides of Christ, very holy women. And uh, so I didn't expect a word like bottom to come out of her mouth. Right. Um, Oh, I just howled with laughter, you know. And of course, when I was laughing, I hadn't realized she'd whipped the dressing off and I I didn't feel a thing. I didn't feel any pain. And I I just thought she was the most wonderful person on earth. Now, I never wanted to be a nun. I'd had I'd had an overdose of religion. I I lost my faith as a teenager. But I, I wanted to be a nurse when I found out that that's what she also was. And I kept to that decision. And it was a wonderful career that I had in nursing. Oh, that's so amazing. So would you say she was one of the reasons why you became a nurse? She was the reason I became a nurse. Wow. She, was the only, she was the only reason. Have you told her because, this? No. Because oh. yeah, yeah, I left the children's home when I was nine. Yeah. And I never went back there, and it's long since been pulled down. Um, I've I've never had, you know, so it wasn't possible to have contact. Wow. Didn't have mobile phone, you know. Yeah. There wasn't the internet to sort of link in. No, I never I never had the opportunity to to tell her. Oh, that's amazing, and I think you know we all have that person in our life that we can remember. You know, who secretly inspired yes. our our future. In your book, you say it was a gradual realization that your skin color would have an impact on you and your family and those around you. How did that become clear to you? Well, I never I never met a non-white person until I was 18 mm-hmm. when I started studying to be a nurse in London where the students were from all over the world. But I gradually realised that my skin colour was different to everybody else. And uh, I remember washing my face 10 times with red carbolic soap to try and become white like my friends. And having such sensitive skin mm-hmm. wasn't such a good idea. And I ended up in sick bay. So, yeah, I knew I was different. And there were various ways that that was brought to my attention. Being told by one nun that I couldn't be Humpty Dumpty, that another yeah. nun had, you know, selected me to be. And uh, seeing these two nuns argue with each other, and fortunately, my nun winning, yeah. and I did play Humpty <laughs> Dumpty, you know. So, you know, that brought it home to me that, yeah, I, I, I was different. Mm-hmm. You know, ha- having a question, where where do you come from? But I quickly realised that the answer that I was giving, which was Birmingham, that that wasn't accepted as the answer by many people. And I said, no, 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 where do you really come from? Wow. And not realising until I got a bit older that they were challenging me because of my skin colour. Because to be brown-skinned, you couldn't possibly be English mm. or British. Right. You must either have come from overseas, you know, from another country, or your parents must have come from overseas. My, my father was Nigerian, but of course, see, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't, I never had anybody talk about my father when I was growing up. Yeah. And um, I, I didn't, I didn't find him until I was 22. So as a child, because nobody spoke about my father, I never asked about my father. So, I, 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 and I didn't, I couldn't work out as a child, why my skin colour was different from the others. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about <laughs> genetics, reproduction, nothing like that, of course. Yeah. And um, it was just something that was never spoken about, yeah. ever. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it was like being a Black child born into a white Irish Catholic family in 1947? I mean, 
from your from reading your book, why was there a feeling of shame around this? And what lengths did your family go to keep it hidden? And how did that affect you growing up as an adult? Well, you see, yes, well, there were two key factors. Uh, the um, as it was called in you know, the illegitimacy, mm-hmm. out, you know, a child born outside of yeah. law, yeah. <laughs> legal status, law, lawful marriage, and being mixed race. Uh, and when we're talking about mixed race, we're not talking about white Irish and white Scottish. We're talking about white Irish and a black Nigerian yes. parent. You know, you have to remember in 1947, and certainly in the Midlands, in the middle mm-hmm. part of England, you didn't see... You know, you very rarely saw somebody from who, who, with with a skin color that wasn't white. Yeah. So you add on all of this: the 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 stigma, the religion, the rarity of this situation, and uh, I think it explains the reaction. But but it also makes me realize, as I said earlier, that children in my situation, majority of them received a much harsher. Uh, experience than I did. Uh, you had at that time the GI babies, so we had a, a huge presence of American GIs uh, for, because of the Second World War, white British women having their children, and there's, the, there's a beautiful book called Brown Babies, and these were or the GI babies, brown babies, and when you hear of the experiences that, you know, a significant number of them ended up in care mm-hmm. for the whole of their lives, and um, some had very negative experiences. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, a lot of people say my my book uh, is very positive, and that's mm-hmm. what people like about it, because so. often similar stories are really very tragic uh, and very harsh in what's happened to individuals. And and again, that goes back to why my friends and colleagues urged me to write my story because they were much more familiar with these much more, more tragic outcomes for some for some individuals. Of Absolutely, race. and your book is incredibly inspiring. Thank you. You share a memory of when you were out for a walk, and your great aunt introduced mm. you as a child who had been adopted by your grandparents, and how it gave you mixed feelings. Yes, I was very surprised for an awful lot of reasons. First of all, I was very close to my great aunt. Uh, She was very loving. Also, she was a a very devout Catholic, Mm -hmm. very religious. Something, hold on, she's telling a lie. That really struck home, you know, because I'd been brought up in that same religion in a convent, you know. (laughs) You mustn't lie, and you had to go to confession if you lied. I'm thinking, hold on, she's lying. Why is she not telling this woman that I am actually related to her. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not adopted. I'm not fostered. I, what's going on here? And I was very sad as well. Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, it, was, it was the first time I realised that she couldn't bring herself, my, my great aunt, to tell anybody that I was related to her. Wow. Yes, and, and a moment I couldn't discuss with her. Because, again, I, I think as children sometimes you know <laughs> when to talk about something, when yes. not to talk something about something. And also, I, I was surprised. I really was. And you literally just have to swallow it and just get on with it, get on with it. But it, it's there at the back of your mind all the time. Mm-hmm. Wow, she couldn't even tell them I'm 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 related to her. Hmm. Okay. That must have been very hurtful and confusing for sure. It was hurtful, but I still loved her. And mm-hmm. you know, I I I, I always look forward to going to stay with her and her sister, great aunt Lil, when, you know, as a teenager in the north, northwest of England, because they looked, they really looked after me. And that was the only time I, mm-hmm. I uh, experienced that because, well, I suppose I didn't meet many of their neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> I think this says so much about your capacity to positively and significantly impact people's lives with small kindnesses and empathy. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not a psychologist, so yeah. I, don't, I don't understand where all that... Yeah, it was when I bought my book out and the, the, the feedback I got... Well, actually, before that, because when I, when, I, when I decided, yes, OK, I will write my memoirs, I read a lot, like many people do. And I love 
biographies and autobiographies. I'm slightly addicted to reading them, actually. Um, but some of them, I just would think, I wonder if they've asked anybody else's view of themselves. What are other people's perceptions? Because this seems to be too rosy a picture of yourself. You right. know, I don't know. And so I decided uh, to use my research experience uh, uh, and interview th about 31 people who, who knew me in various stages of my life, either because they were relatives or friends or or colleagues from when I worked or, you know, whatever. And, and I, I said to them, just please be truthful and, you know, warts and all, you know, the expression warts and all. Um, just, I want your perception of me as during the period that you've known me, um, strengths and weaknesses, difficulties and, you know, um, and I think I got some of it. I don't think I got it all. <laughs> People are too kind. Yes, you know? <laughs> I was going to say, did you get any, did you receive any brutally honest reviews? <laughs> yes, uh, um, that I don't suffer fools gladly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah several people told me that that uh, I'm impatient and I sometimes don't understand that I'm rushing ahead in my thoughts ahead of other people and that some people are having difficulty keeping up with me and I'm not aware of that okay so in in the sense that I'm not actually really watching and listening to people I'm not watching people's reactions to see are they with me? Are they are they absorbing it? Are they puzzled by it? Are they, uh, what what? So, uh, she said, um, you, "It's different when you're teaching. You, you're you're very good with students, but she said when when you're with your friends and she said sometimes you just race ahead on on an issue, and you know we're struggling to keep up with you and you don't realize that. Oh. It's like oh that's Elizabeth, you know." <laughs> So that I think that's very helpful feedback. Yeah, person. that is helpful feedback. Um, You've talked about how the first time you fully felt accepted was after your trip to Nigeria with your father. Can you yeah. describe how it felt and what it taught you about yourself? Well, as I've mentioned, I, I didn't meet my father until I was 22. And that, that was a, a, a huge experience in my life. Uh, you know, my mother and my mother's family have all been extremely loving and caring towards me. But there was this big gap, particularly as it was my father that gave me my skin color, which is mm -hmm. what society views you uh, as. Um, and also just not having a father figure when yeah. many of your friends talk about their fathers, often in a positive way, not, not of it. And I'd had a very difficult relationship with my stepfather. Mm -hmm for the 20 months that I lived with him and my mother. So male, male relatives, the few I had, well, the only one I had as a child, uh, well, it was rather negative. Mm -hmm. So I was a bit fearful of, of how I would relate to my father. I mean, I was over the moon when I found him and he was so mm -hmm. loving towards me and um, it, 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 he, he welcoming. Yeah. So it wasn't, I didn't, I never got any rejection whatsoever, but I didn't, I couldn't even call him dad or father mm -hmm. for the first few weeks. It was my stepmother yes. who sort of said, you can't call him Lawrence or, you know, or he's your father. I think you that's such an amazing moment. How did, yeah. what did that feel like in the moment? Because meeting the stepmother, you never mm. know. I mean, that was another key moment for me that stood out because mm. that's acceptance, you know, that's mm -hmm. comfort. So yes. in that moment, you know, what did that feel like from her? Well, I, I, for, for me, the, the, the biggest thing was when my father gave me a big hug. Mm -hmm. And I would recommend, you know, to any parent who's lost, long, long lost child uh, appears on their doorstep. That's what you do, mm -hmm. because it's very scary for the child, yeah. because you've got all these anxieties you know, will they like you? Because we've all read horror stories of when yes. people have met uh, a biological parent and it hasn't worked out. It's very, very sad. Mm -hmm. Or or where the biological parent doesn't even want to meet yes. a child, you know, which is even worse. So there, there is all these anxieties. And it was they were just wiped away when my dad gave me that big bear hug. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I did notice my stepfather sort of, looking down at me uh, uh, sort of quizzically which was understandable again and you know 
we got on. It wasn't as close a relationship as with my father, but you know, we we we, we managed, so, and it and you know, it it did work out. Considering I, as I was twenty two mm-hmm. when I first met them both, yeah, and then, um, but you know, and I knew my father for eight years before he died, and again, uh, you know, I just think, oh, God, I was lucky mm-hmm. to find him and to have a positive relationship with him. And to know him for eight years and to know him both in London and when he went back to Nigeria to live permanently. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I saw him in different settings. Yes. And can you take us back to that first trip to Nigeria? You talk about the dancing and then learning the language. You know, what really stands out? And for those who can't travel right now, um, can you take us back to that moment? Yes. Well, the first thing that hit me getting off the plane which I see described in many people's mm-hmm. books is that is the being it was is being enveloped by um warmth because don't forget I'm coming from a cold England you know and so I love the heat I hate the cold so that went down very very well for me and then being totally accepted by my family and what a family you know the the huge extended family of cousins and aunties and uncles and oh my goodness it was incredible and I've got a very poor memory I have to say so I thought how am I going to ever remember all their names and in the end I thought don't bother just just relax with them and that worked you know and they would tell me off if I didn't remember their name but then they would they would they would give me a hug and there was this expression you well you've tried you've tried in other words they were very pleased that I'd made all the efforts that I had done to find my father to come to Nigeria. And even though I couldn't speak the language, they were happy that I was there, that I was prepared to try all the different food stuffs and that I, I love most of them, um, that I would learn a few words so they could see that I was attempting to, to, to learn the language and that I loved music. I, I loved, I was, I'm a very curious person. That helped enormously. And they were so loving and they really looked after me. And also they were very funny. I've got a great sense of humour. I love laughing. <laughs> you know, even when I saw the deceased person, the gentleman lying in state, so to speak, in, in on his bed in the home, I'd never, I've seen dead people in the hospital, but I'd never seen a dead body in, in the person's home. And, and I wasn't, nobody told me that. <laughs> I was just taken into this room. Oh, okay, right. And and then the, the when when he, he he was being buried, you know, and the wailing and the noise level was incredible. And then the, the one of the relatives, the wife, I'm not, I can't remember, trying to throw themselves, appearing to try and throw themselves into the grave. Wow. Then you know, my father realizing I I was absolutely shocked. You know, my heartbeat must have just been yeah. off the wall. And he just made me laugh by saying. Oh, you know, those people who scream the loudest probably, yes. you know, were least loved by the person. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, dear, dear. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, do you have a favorite saying in Igbo that you can share with us? No, I'll tell you what really I love. There's, a, there's an expression called no, and it's double N-O. And it's it means I'm sorry for you. and so, for example, um, I might have hurt myself, uh, hit my hand against something. This is when I first remember it. And somebody said, no. And I knew it was. And, then, and I would turn and say, well, it was OK. It was my fault. And then somebody explained to me, culturally, that's not what it means. It's they are expressing sympathy that you have hurt yourself. And I thought, wow, isn't that wonderful? Yeah, that's really nice. What empathy there. So I just thought that was a lovely expression. It is. Yes. Thank you. You talk about how we all grow up in a bubble. So black, white women, men, we're all in this bubble and it takes other people experiences, in this case, a trip, cultures to make us realize what's going on elsewhere. What can we do now to get outside of our bubble? Oh, I think there are so many ways. Reading, watching television, watching films. Most importantly, if you have the opportunity and you know people from different cultures, make them aware that you you have an interest in aspects of their culture. Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't understand something, explain that you you don't understand and could it be explained to you? 
if you feel you've offended somebody, there's usually an opportunity to say, I, you know, I actually, I, I, I didn't understand that, or could you explain it? Mm-hmm. There, there are so many opportunities to learn about different cultures, you know, or, or through the internet, through, as I said, through books, or through going to, you know, the theatre. I, I, don't, I don't know. There's the arts, and actually, you know, there are opportunities. For some, when somebody dies, somebody well-known dies, for example, Lata, a beautiful, beautiful Indian singer who's just died, and I've got quite a lot of her music on. on um, and there have been some wonderful, wonderful obituaries about her. And I've just learned more about her culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the way um, to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, we can't know everything. We can't. And um, I'm, I'm not scared of getting it wrong. I'm, I'm prepared to apologise, but say I didn't know. Absolutely. It's sometimes when we get it wrong, it's how we learn how to get it right, in a way. Yes. So a few years prior to your trip to Nigeria, you decided to go to nursing school. Did you always know it was what you wanted? Yes, uh, from that nun mm-hmm. treating my eczema so well. I, I I never wanted to do anything else. And, you know, there were teachers who thought that I could go mm-hmm. to university. Because at that time, nursing in this country wasn't generally studied at university. I mean, it is now. You, you went to a school of nursing, which was attached to a hospital. There were a couple of universities where you could get a degree in nursing, but the vast majority of nurses in that era, and I trained in the 60s, we went, we did it out with of the universities. And, um, you know, there were teachers who said, look, you know, you're bright enough to go to university and, you know, you could study this or study that. And I'm a very polite person. I said, oh, yes, okay. But I knew inside me, I, yeah. I, I want to be a nurse. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, you see, <laughs> they'd be, they would be happy now because not only did I fulfil my nursing career the way I wanted to, so I went through the, the traditional route of nursing, as I've said, at a school of nursing. Then I did health visiting, and then I specialised in as a sickle cell specialist nurse. And then uh, because I wanted to originally work in Nigeria, uh, but my father advised me to try and come at a more senior level than as a health visitor. And that's that's why I studied for a degree, to be quite honest. That that was the original reason. But I ended up getting a, a, a doctorate. So even though I didn't go to university until I was an adult, uh, a very mature adult, um, actually, I ended up becoming a professor, professor of nursing. So life is very, very odd at times, isn't it? If you look back, you wouldn't have thought this is the way it would play out. And and, and um, it did play out that way. Mm-hmm. In your book, you talk about the hierarchy and the bullies in your life mm-hmm. and how this still exists, I'm sure, today. Mm-hmm. Um, you also shared that you do talks with students of midwifery. Midwifery, midwifery. midwifery yes. Helping those who are being bullied. Is this mm-hmm. common? And Yes. And what advice do you have for anyone who might be dealing with a bully in their life? Well, if it's within the, for example, the nursing profession or any work-based situation, uh, I think you should belong to a trade union and or a professional association because you need an organization that's going to support you, um, that, that is independent of the workplace. And so it's worth paying dues to a trade union or, or a professional association because it's, it's, it's a form of insurance against these situations. Many people will go through their career and not experience it. Um, but I still think they should have this type of insurance cover mm-hmm. because you don't know when it will happen. And it happens at the oddest of times and regardless of who you are. I mean, some people are more prone to difficulties uh, because of their gender, their ethnicity, their sexual orientation. We, we, we know that. So my advice would be uh, make sure you have an organisation that you are a member of, that if you ever are unfortunate enough to experiencing the horror of bullying, you, you go to that organisation for support. Mm-hmm. And also 
try and find allies in your workplace and friends who you can turn to don't don't bottle it all up mm-hmm. um we see the terrible mental health issues that can occur if you do bottle it up and it is important to however difficult it is try and share your issues with somebody and get advice mm-hmm. thank you why do you feel people feel the need to exert power over others? I just think it's part of nature, I'm afraid. I think if you look at the animal kingdom, um, we're part of the animal kingdom. Yeah. You know, we like to call ourselves human beings, but there is there is this sort of uh, uh, desire for people to feel that they're superior to others. Mm-hmm. And it's all around us. Yeah. And that's when bullying can take place. It's a pandemic of its own. Yes, you're (laughs) absolutely right. And it's horrible. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you learn about sickle cell? Not in my nurse training, I can tell you. Um, It was when I became a health visitor that I first encountered a child um, uh, in a family that I visited who had sickle cell anemia. Mm -hmm. This was the late 1970s. And I got in more involved with black community issues. And, and, I, and because I'm nursing background, I was interested in black community health issues. And so therefore very quickly, I just I realized that there's this illness that mainly, mainly affects the black community and sickle cell anemia. And I was angry that I hadn't been taught anything about it. And, uh, I then uh, went to a couple of lectures by Dr. Misha Brozovic, who who sadly has just died. She died a couple of months ago. So I'd like to pay tribute to her. Um, Because I went to to listen to her talk and she was such a wonderful educator. She really brought this subject to life and it's very complex at times. She was able to break down uh, all the medical terminology and the described the physiology of the condition very clearly. And I asked a lot of questions after each of the two talks that I went to, and she came rushing after me after the second one. Clear, you know, you're obviously very interested in this subject. And, and we started talking and she was very worried about the lack of support provided to the families who were predominantly black families. I suppose she saw in me a black health worker who was interested in the subject. And, um, well, to cut a long story short, I ended up working with um, Dr. Brozovic. And I'd been to visit the United States on holiday, but I also was interested then uh, uh, in sickle cell. So I went to visit a few sickle cell centers and the National Sickle Cell Foundation in, in Los Angeles. And they were so helpful to me gave me a lot of information and support. And that's when I discovered that there were sickle cell nurse specialists. I met them in Los Angeles and San Francisco and New wow. York and Chicago and Minneapolis. And I thought, wow, this, this is what I'd like to do. Yeah. So I spoke to Dr. Brozovic and, uh, and I'd gone on a couple of short courses in America. Uh, the foundations had organized uh, putting me on free of charge. So um, that's how I became the first sickle cell nurse specialist in the United Kingdom in 1979. Just incredible. Truly, truly incredible. And for everyone listening who might not know what sickle cell disease is, can you help us understand what sickle cell is? Yes, certainly. It's an inherited blood disorder that affects the hemoglobin, which is inside the red blood cells and hemoglobin carries the oxygen um, within the red blood cells and we we all inherit what's called a hemoglobin type which for most people around the world is called AA so hemoglobin A from one parent and hemoglobin A from the other but there are other types of hemoglobin and one is sickle hemoglobin and if you inherit sickle hemoglobin from each parent you inherit sickle cell anemia, the illness. Now, the parents usually don't have the illness. They're what's called silent carriers of the condition. 
and uh, we would say they have sickle cell trait or they are a carrier of sickle cell. And every time they have a child, there's a 25% chance that each of their children could be born with the illness. One in four chance every time they have a child. Uh, the child doesn't normally present with the problems until after the age of six months. And then uh, it could be the symptoms include, the problems include anemia, it can be tired, vulnerability to infections such as pneumonia, a sort of clotting because the cells sickle. The sickle is like a, uh, a half moon or a banana shape. And that's, that's the way the round red blood cells can change in somebody with sickle cell anemia. And the problem is not only that, they, that these cells are awkward shapes, they can form sort of clots, they can clump together. And this can cause severe pain in whichever part of the body that sickling occurs, as we call it, sickling. And it can cause organ damage in that part of the body it happens. So children, for example, young children can have strokes wow. because of sickling in the brain. They, they might have problems in their hips, in their shoulders. They're very prone to chest problems, infections, which can be fatal. Mm -hmm. um, there's a variety of problems based on the susceptibility to infections or the sickling in various parts of the body. And so it, it, historically, I mean, when I first got involved, the life expectation was around 30 or something wow. years. But now you see people living into their 70s and 80s even. Wow. It still can cause early death but it's less and less likely now if that individual is managed um, within a comprehensive sickle cell center provider service, right. for example. And from what I understand, sickle cell isn't only underdiagnosed, but during a sickle cell crisis, which can be extremely painful, patients are often treated with skepticism when they go to the emergency room. And many medical staff even assume, you know, maybe it's attention seeking or, or drug seeking. What is your opinion on that? And, and do you think race plays a, a role in that? Race does play a role in this because sickle cell anemia originates, originated in parts of the world where you find a, a certain type of malaria. And we're talking about parts of Africa, um, the Mediterranean countries, uh, also the Middle East, but in a significant uh, number of countries in Africa, uh, there's a high prevalence of this condition, countries like Nigeria and Ghana, for example. And in, in, in Britain, it's predominantly black people who have the condition. And you then take on race, you take on severe pain, which requires um, opiates. Mm -hmm. and we're talking about morphine. Uh, you see a young black male, as an example, writhing with pain mm -hmm. in the accident and emergency department demanding morphine mm -hmm. and they know the exact dose of course they know the exact dose they've been born with this illness they've grown up with this illness they know more about this illness than the, most of the health workers do except the specialists so they know they know what they need to get this awful pain reduced now you get a nurse or a doctor who doesn't know much about sickle cell if anything who has racist attitudes who has attitudes about any patient that, you know, patients shouldn't know more than they should, you know, whether black or white. Yeah. You get a health provider like that, God help you, right. because they won't believe you. Yeah. Now, you know, uh, there's so much effort being made to just educate health professionals. And we need a lot more because the resources haven't been put into this properly. And it's taken, sadly, I'm talking about the English experience, deaths of individuals with sickle cell disease that could have been avoided if the health professionals, first of all, knew about the condition and B, had more empathy towards the patients. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we're still seeing examples of these deaths. And it takes scandals to bring it to the yeah. fore yet again. And it's still not, it's still not sorted out. It, it just yeah. Looks... Why do you think that people in the NHS and globally, why do you think they don't see sickle cell as a significant public health issue. I think it's racism. I think it's ignorance. 
uh, I think it's a lack of resources at a national level put into a condition like sickle cell disease because you know you have to take a national lead with this mm -hmm. because we have pockets of excellent practice but you can't expect those practitioners working you know every hour somebody sends to be going around the country teaching everybody else no yeah. that's not the way it works you know if you have a condition such as heart attacks, well, you'd expect every medical student and nursing student to be taught about it. You, mm -hmm. you, you expect that, and it should be in the curriculum. Yes. So too should they be being taught about sickle cell disease. And it's seen as a minority condition. Oh, you know. So mm -hmm. when the curriculum is, is developed, unless there are people around that table who know about sickle cell disease, have an interest in sickle cell disease, it's not going to be included in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. It's You see, it's not mandated. It's not, nobody has to teach about this condition. Now that's that's where it's wrong, because why should you be leaving it to somebody? Of course, you, of course you're not going to get universal um, education about this within nursing schools the way we have it at the moment. Right, I'm sure you're tired of um, this question, but what can we do to change this? What can we do as people? Well, first of all, there has to be an awareness about it. So I think the media, um, podcasts such as your own. Thank you. You can't know something about something you don't know about, you know, right. whatever it is, you know. You don't know what you don't know. So, so the people who do know and the, 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 the platforms that could disseminate this information, they're the two groups, I think, that have... Um, uh, a lot of responsibility, as do the politicians, because it's been brought mm -hmm. to their notice. They they can actually they have the authority, the clout, the power to link in with the National Health Service, the, the most senior people, and give directives and and provide resources to ensure, from a national level, adequate information uh, and services are resourced. And also that there's accountability so that those uh, health services uh, where complaints are made about inadequate or, or no provision of services, that those complaints are dealt with um, uh, appropriately and that the, the, the user's voice, those individuals who have the condition and their organisations such as the Sickle Cell Society in the United Kingdom, of which I am a patron, they need to be listened to and supported and resourced because they act as the lobbyists, they act as the champion for many patients, but they, they are often not resourced properly. And the areas that are resourced that don't take any interest in it, you know, it's, it's, it's not on an equal footing. Yeah. And that's where the politicians can play a part Absolutely. to recognise this and to allocate resources or to ensure that resources are allocated because this is health inequalities and where you have yes. health inequality you need a powerful organization saying this this isn't acceptable yeah absolutely. going to take resources and give them to this area even if it means taking it from someone else that is over resourced so be it absolutely elizabeth what inspired you out of retirement and back to work well, I haven't gone back to work. I, I, <laughs> I did retire. I mean, I retired, um, but I've always been involved with the voluntary, um, yes. as, as, as I say, the Sickle Cell Societies was one of the key charities that I well, helped to set up way back in 1979. And so, you know, now I'm a patron. I don't actually don't see it as work. I mean, listen, I'm sitting here. You know, you could call this work if you like, but it keeps me occupied, doesn't it? Come on. Yes. I, I know you've been quite involved since COVID-19 broke out. It, it is actually only through my established networks. I, I, I get asked to give a lot of talks about my life and about my career. And, and then we get into a discussion. What people ask me a lot is how, how, could, how can I advise them in dealing with issue A or issue B? And because, you know, I am retired, I'm not employed by anybody. I don't have to be worried about what I say. I, I, I can speak freely and <clears throat> confidently give, if I can, give advice or signpost individuals or organisations so that they can get hold of the information and the support. 
I do like teaching. I do like being involved in discussions on areas that are, that that I am knowledgeable about. I do say no to a lot of things because mm-hmm. I'm not knowledgeable about them, and I'm I'm, I'm choosy about what I do. T- to get involved in. Well, we were happy you said yes to this. What what do you want our listeners to know about sickle cell and COVID-19 and how maybe um, COVID-19 has particularly had a devastating effect on Black and Asian communities? Well, if I take sickle cell uh, and, and COVID-19 for a start, COVID-19 does has caused deaths of individuals with sickle cell disease as it's caused deaths of, of, of so many people who didn't even have any illnesses, Mm -hmm. but those who have long-term conditions, as we call them, such as sickle cell disease, are particularly vulnerable. We certainly saw that black and minority ethnic communities um, were were particularly uh, severely affected to to the extent of deaths. When we saw the first, the the, the pictures of, of those first 60 or 70 people that died in Britain, predominantly black, and Asian individuals. So that that was staggering to see that. And a lot of the reasons were that they were frontline workers. And if you look at the staffing within the National Health Service, it's been very, very dependent on uh, black and minority ethnic health work individuals. So it's not surprising then that frontline workers, as we call them, they are those people at the bedside caring for people at the bedside. They are the people within the accident and emergency units where people uh, present initially. A significant number of family doctors are are from that background. So they're what we call front-facing individuals. So they they were exposed to the virus in a a huge viral load in a way because they had this day. And initially there was very inadequate personal protective equipment uh, distributed to frontline workers. So that was a double whammy. Absolutely. And um, it's, you know, yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you. And to end our conversation, I would love to talk about your damehood. You have have so many amazing, um, you know, elements to your life. And it was just amazing listening and reading your book. But to have accomplished, and you talk about this in your book, the accomplishment and how your family, um, those who are alive and, and who are past, you know, would be and are proud. What did that moment feel like for you? Well, first of all, it was a huge shock yeah. to get the letter offering me the dead one. I mean, it really was. Maybe you're word. thinking, is this real? <laughs> oh, Listen, I read the letter three times. I was in the hall. I live on my own. And when I opened it, and I, I, I really couldn't believe it. I just... I read it. I just read it three times because I, this this can't be true. <laughs> You're not supposed to discuss it with too many people. But hey ho, come on! I'm I I rang a, a relative and a friend. Yeah. Oh wow. Oh my goodness. Yes, it was a it was a huge shock, but it was a pleasant shock. Absolutely, I'd say so. And Elizabeth, my final question is: What do you want people to take from your book? Your mother's story is heartbreaking, but it's resilient. What do you want people to take away from your book? I want them to learn about the life of uh, a 74-year-old mixed-race woman born in England in 1947 Mm -hmm. and follow her experience uh, and and the, the the social and political experiences and the context of her life, because lives such as mine, we don't read many narratives like that. Yeah. I think there are more now, but there, there still aren't very many. And so to read about a life that you would not necessarily have ever met anybody or listened to or known about the sort of experiences that individual both positive and negative, has had in today's today's society. Absolutely. And that is exactly what people are going to get when reading it. Such an amazing story. And thank you so much again for joining the Millie podcast and lending your story to this podcast. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a huge honor. 
And it's it's been a lovely session. Very relaxed. Oh, <laughs> thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining me for this conversation with Dame Elizabeth Anianwu. Join us next time for a special panel episode to celebrate International Women's Day. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please hit subscribe, share with your friends, and visit us at millie.ca.